Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Welcome to Ed Ideas. I'm Brandon Tatum. And today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Alden Bass. Dr. Bass is a professor at Oklahoma Christian University. He's done a lot of research on youth and family, and specifically a spiritual formation from a family perspective. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Bass on the podcast. I also have Phil Brookman, preaching minister at Memorial Road in Edmond, Oklahoma, and a longtime youth minister here, um, helping me interview Dr. Bass. Phil, glad you're here. Yeah, it, glad to be here. I, ironically, I actually just came from a uh, meeting with teenagers, and the the point of the discussion at the meeting was how do we get teenagers to be engaged in, in larger kingdom issues. So I'm just super excited about the overall topic of all these, these podcasts of how, how do you really get young people to to contribute and to own their faith you know we, we all know stories of young people that do that really well and that's so inspiring but then sadly a lot of us know stories that where it doesn't work out that way and, and and they leave their faith and and those are heartbreaking so i'm just looking forward to hearing from a lot of these experts on this topic no oh, i agree you and me both i think uh, having these conversations about how do we empower our students to really to to bear God's image and live out their faith, I think is so important. Dr. Bass, uh, you've lived an interesting life thus far. Tell us a little bit about um, you living in community while y'all were in St. Louis. Yeah, so community is a pretty broad word. So I'll give you a picture of it and then I'll explain what we were doing. Uh, There was a group of Christians. We came out of a campus ministry uh, and we all lived together in a big house in inner city St. Louis. Uh, by the time we left, we actually owned two houses across the street from each other. Now, the impetus for this in part, uh, Candace and I, we lived in Honduras for a year in between my graduate work, and we saw how people live differently, and uh, we were inspired. We also realized that this way of living in single-family houses was pretty anomalous, uh, both historically and globally. We also had ministry experiences where we realized it's just easier to do some things, especially intensive ministries, if you have friends, people there to help. And so when we moved to St. Louis and we decided to commit to work in the inner city, we met some other folks who were interested and we moved in together. But instead of just being housemates, uh, we decided to be an intentional community. And what that means is we, we wrote a rule of life So if you know Christians throughout history have lived by rules of life, you usually think of monks and nuns who live a a, a ruled life. So we read their stuff, and then we kind of came up with what might work for us. And uh, essentially, we did three things together. We agreed to serve together in the neighborhood once a week. We agreed to share our lives together 
and that look like eating together most nights, sharing the responsibilities and sharing expenses so we contributed to a common bank account. And it also meant that we prayed together twice a day, morning and evening prayer. And uh, those were two times of the day where we came together. So we did that for about nine years with anywhere from four to 14 people in the community, including our children. Uh, and that was a tremendously formative experience for us. Were you the only family with children? Is that what I remember? Or were the, the other yes, family? Yes, okay. we were the only family with children. Mm-hmm. And, and so now you've moved to Edmond, and you don't do that. You have, you have a house, right? You have mm-hmm. your family. Has it been a hard transition? Uh, it has been a hard transition in many ways. Uh, it seems like it would be hard to live with other people in the same house, especially if you're married. Uh, but it, it turned out to be a pretty wonderful thing. And it's hard to be on our own now. Um, it's good in other ways. Uh, this is also a great place to land because Oklahoma Christian and Memorial Road, and we live across the street. It's all a kind of community, too. In fact, I just came from the CAF at OC, where I ate with people I worked with, and I live next door to some of them. So there's actually a really vibrant, strong sense of community here, and that's cushioned the blow a little bit. Yeah. So what, what would you say... You think back to those nine years doing life in a way that most Christians don't do. Most Christians are pretty, get your white picket fence up there, and I don't want anybody in my business, and, you know, we we like our privacy. You actually shared life for nine years. Mm -hmm. So as you reflect on that, what would you say are some of the, the fruit that you took away from that? Strangely, one of the benefits of living with other people, in particular other Christians, is you fight more. Uh, living together under the same roof puts you in conflict with each other um, over dumb stuff like sweeping and mopping and buying groceries and putting too much salt in the food Uh, and you probably do this if you have a spouse you know those sorts of things and you work them out Uh, now imagine this with you know five or six people Uh, but the covenanted life means that we agree to work through the conflict and so Conflict becomes an opportunity for spiritual growth. And one of the difficulties is when you retreat behind the picket fence, often it's retreating from conflict. Um, It's easy for me to get along with you when I see you twice a week, and we really have, we don't share a lot of our lives. We worship together, we educate our kids together, things like that. But when we have the same refrigerator, there's all sorts of opportunities for spiritual growth that come from that. Uh, And the worst part, best part, is you just find out what a petty person that you are, that all this stuff gets under your skin. You can't let, it's not like major sin that we're dealing with. It's like you keep buying orange juice with pulp, and I want it without pulp. (laughs) And, and, you know, years of this, right? So I kind of miss that. Wow. So uh, one of the things you talk about is that all people live in, in narratives. Everybody picks a story and, and they live within that story. Uh, what do you think the narrative is that we need to call young people into? One of the things that we found living in community, uh, because it is a little off the beaten path, we had to come up with stuff. Uh, we had to figure it out on the fly a lot of times. 
And uh, that was difficult, and we didn't always know what to do, but it was tremendously exciting to be off the path. Um, I'm the son of a preacher and the grandson of a preacher, and my wife growing up in the church, so we really knew how to go. But those years, both in inner city work and in the communal life, it just opened up new worlds that we really hadn't been prepared for. Um, but it was tremendously exciting, and part of what made it exciting is we had people on the journey with us, and every night we'd get together, and we worked with kids in the tutoring program, and we'd come home in the evening, and we'd pray together, not long, 10 or 15 minutes, but then we'd sit around for 30 or 40 minutes, talk about what had happened, debrief, or just cut up, you know, mm. have fun. Um, so adventure. Christian life is an adventure that may not look like everyone else's life. And we're free. That, you know, that's compelling to me because the, I think the narrative that it's really easy to slip into is the church is 90 minutes on Sunday and the rest of my life is my life. And most of us are pretty good at compartmentalizing. Well, the narrative you're describing is much more of a church is life and community is life and this all this all goes together and that in some ways is a lot easier when you're forced to live with people so what would you say for the people that they're not in intentional community they have ascribed to the narrative of church 90 minutes a week everything else is kind of my own how do how do you get people to lean into that narrative of this is all life together i'm working on that I think part of it is uh, most of us have never seen it. Hmm. You know, some of us have traveled and we have seen other things, but I think that act of imagination that's required to think, how can I take what I've seen in Honduras or wherever I visited, and how does that transform the way I live here? Um, because they're just separate places, I think, most of the time. But to, to be freed from the narrative that we're sort of born into, to be free that it doesn't have to be this way. And then in fact, again, historically it hasn't been this way for most Christians for most of time. Uh, it's to me tremendously exciting, especially when you have friends to go along. Hmm. So this is a, a podcast uh, focused very much on spiritual formation, specifically for Generation Z, uh, as we're asking the question, uh, well, first, we're worried about some of the outcomes we've seen with millennials. We see Generation Z coming behind them. And so I think as parents, as ministry leaders, we're, we're worried uh, about our kids. And we're asking the question, how are we relevant and meaningful? Um, and, and how can we spiritually form them? And so let's, let's talk a little bit about spiritual formation. But first, help us maybe frame uh, what spiritual formation is. That's kind of a big term. What is spiritual formation to you? Uh, Phil used the language of story or narrative, and I think a big part of spiritual formation is uh, being intentional about the story that we're a part of. Uh, you turn on the television or the radio or open up the browser, and there's always a narrative at play, right? Um, we see the negative things, and maybe the narrative is, hey, this is just how the world is. There's always going to be suffering. There's always going to be war. There's always going to be pain. 
Um, maybe technology can help. But these are the narratives. And so to be intentional, especially with young people, uh, of reframing that narrative. And, and part of it may be a deconstruction, not there's the formation, but also the deconstruction of the narrative that we inherit, which is the white picket fence narrative. Um, because that, that's the default. And um, you know, when my students graduate here at OC, I think that they just sort of fall back into, because uh, things are hard, right? And they just do what they've seen done before. And we, I think, minimally need to say, it doesn't have to be that way. There's, there's other ways, and you can kind of make one up. I, I like that. That So on the podcast so far, we've had quite a few, Jamie Smith, uh, Josh Grays, Mallory Wyckoff, Luke Norsworthy, and in all of our conversations with them in spiritual formation, at some level they talked about deconstruction and reconstruction where we're deconstructing some beliefs, and now we're reconstructing some things together. And so I like to hear that, the idea of deconstruction and how, how important that is. James K.A. Smith um, has written a book called You Are What You Love, and it has, uh, it has shaped and formed my view on this topic greatly. Uh, Jamie is on the podcast, friend of the podcast, and you're, you're a big Jamie fan as well. Help us, uh, take us through Jamie's idea of liturgy and why is liturgy important in spiritual formation? Liturgy is not a word we're comfortable with, not a word we use a lot, mm -hmm. at least in my circles. Uh, so help us walk through liturgy and why liturgy is important. So the first thing is to understand desire. What do we want? And for all of us, if you say the good life, there's a picture that pops up into our minds. And this is the default picture. I think for most Americans, it's the picket fence. That's the good life. Financial independence, healthy family, things of that nature. What Smith puts us onto is that that desire comes from somewhere. And it's perpetuated by institutions or liturgies is a word that he uses. And uh, he reminds us that these things are going around constantly, uh, that there are all sorts of forces in the world which are tugging at our heart and which want to shape that picture. And the reason is because there's someone out there trying to sell us a white picket fence. So they need us to have the desire so they can sell us the fence. Smith says that anytime we get together with a group of people that we intend something. Uh, that we share a desire. It could just be to get together to watch a football game, in which case our desire is entertainment. And he says, what you're doing is worship when you get together. That's what liturgy means, is worship. And he reminds us that worship comes from the English worth-ship. What's worthy of your time? What's worthy of your money? What's worthy of your attention? And when we get together, we are devoting our attention to something. Football, entertainment, shopping, family, or what we do here, which is saying what's really worthwhile is, is God. Uh, but this happens 90 minutes a week, as you say, Phil. And all that other stuff, all those other things pulling at our heart, the entertainment, the university system, right, which says knowledge, that's the key. Uh, 
consumer society, which says if you just have this gadget, you'll be happy. If you have these clothes, you'll be happy, and so on. All of those are forming us because wherever our heart is aimed, our body, our mind, our wallets, and everything else follows. So I think Jamie Smith's concern is that we find ways to be very intentional about directing our heart. And then everything else kind of takes care of itself. Um, Augustine, one of the early Christian theologians, famously says, uh, love God and do whatever you want. Because once you get that first thing set up, everything else follows it like a train behind the engine. I love that. Uh, Jamie Smith, uh, for those of you that want to listen to the first podcast, he frames his, the, his talk in four, four concepts. He says, we are made to be makers. We make what we want. We might not want what we think. Therefore, curate your heart. I thought, I, I, love, I love the way he, he frames that. and You did a good job of, of summarizing his work. When did you kind of, did, did Jamie Smith bring you into this language of liturgy, or how did you kind of get to uh, this topic, this conversation? Uh, it wasn't from Jamie Smith. I found him a little later. I, I don't really know. Um, we were just sort of doing our own thing in the community, and uh, I was always looking for resources to figure out what to do next, but also to kind of make sense of what we had been doing. Um, and Smith's language of habit-forming community, of Christianity as a practice, uh, as a kind of muscle memory that comes from doing it repeatedly, really helped make sense of what we were doing because it was every day that we were practicing Christianity with other people. Um, not to say that you have to be in a community to do that, but it was, it was very intensive for us. And, uh, and as I said, formative for us in our outlook. Um, so our liturgy wasn't just our daily periods of worship, that was fairly short, but our liturgy together became meal preparation and dinner time and time with the children and our work in the ministry together. Um, all of these things were liturgical. Liturgy, literally just the work of the people in Greek. You know, one of the things that Smith is so helpful in, in talking about is that liturgy is so powerful. And liturgy is in the, the, the cultural systems in which we inhabit every day. They have so much power. And the scary thing is most people are not aware of how powerful these systems are. For example, so the, in the last week, I did, I've done two weddings. And I can tell you that people are very stressed out when they get married. And the things that people are stressed out in, the last, in these last few days were things like the boutonniere was a few inches off and um, the, the sand wasn't the right color. Uh, and should you cross your left hand over your right hand or your right hand over your left hand while you're standing there? And these things would legitimately stress people out. And it just, it just struck me that None of this has to do with marriage. This is all the power of the liturgy of the wedding industry. We, we, have, we have bought into this notion that the pictures have to be perfect. 
Be- and that's one of the things Smith talks about is that we're all going to post these pictures and I, I want to make sure that my wedding photos are better than your wedding photos. <laughs> and that's what drives the industry. And so there's so much power in these, in these systems that we live in, which is why the Christianity isn't just something you should think about. It's something you should practice and do in order to form an alternative culture. One of the things that we were blessed to experience because of our life and community, we got to know other people who had been doing this for a long time. So there are actually quite a number of Christian intentional communities across the country, some of them 50 or uh, almost 100 years old. Um, the Mennonites have a long tradition of this, not the horse and buggy Mennonites, but the Prius Mennonites, um, the ones who live in cities. Uh, they don't have plain dress. And what we found was there were, there were these people who had lived this way um, very intentionally, and they were, they just had a spirit. Now, you know people like this, too. Maybe they're not Mennonites, uh, but you know people who you just enjoy being with them because their spirit is different. They're, other traditions would call them saints. They're holy, right? Um, and I think part of it was seeing people like that. It was the seeing a different way and seeing people who had a spirit, and I said, I want that. I don't really know how to get it, but I want that. These people are not worried about wedding pictures. These people are calm. These people have weathered grief, and they've seen hard times, and they're people of deep and abiding faith. And so it's putting those models out there that will spark our imaginations, not to slavishly follow the way this person did it, but again, models that are outside of what we always see. So speaking of models, a lot, I know a lot of parents, I'm a parent, and one of the big questions that parents ask is, how do we create liturgies, although they, pro- they probably wouldn't use that word, but how do, we, how do we create the kind of culture that our children can just naturally and organically learn what it means to be a follower of Christ? So uh, example in my world, this is like two years ago, one of my daughters was about four, and we were about to go somewhere, and we weren't late. Like, we had plenty of time. And I'm sitting in the chair, and my daughter starts running around saying things like, I gotta find my shoes. Where are my shoes? Where's my backpack? We gotta, we gotta go. Dad, come on. Go, 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 go. And I looked at her, and I said, Heidi, we're not late. Like, why are you in a rush? And she said, oh, well, that's just the way you act all the time. I was like, oh, no, like, I'm such a bad dad. But it dawned on me that I never taught her that, meaning like verbally said you should be in a hurry, but she, she caught it by watching me, and I, I had actually unintentionally created a terrible liturgy of rush and hurry and anxiety. So how do we, how do we as parents do the alternative, which is how do we create liturgies that our kids can get into and really be formed by? I don't have a great answer to this. But one thing, uh, one thing that we actually did with the kids we worked with in the inner city ministry was we, we tapped some people to be what we called intentional adults in kids' lives. Uh, because uh, my wife, who did a lot of this ministry and a lot of the outreach, uh, she did, she read some research which suggested having seven adults in your life is a kind of threshold for success. Seven stable adults. And of course, the kids we were working with maybe had one, maybe. 
So she was hooking each kid up with a whole network of adults, each of whom had blind spots and weaknesses and failings, but each of them also had different kinds of strengths, right? So I think the more we are present with each other and our kids, the more models there are available and the more we can kind of fill each other's gaps, right? Two people, two adults in a household is good, a husband and a wife, right? But if you can double that or triple that, right? The more we're together, and the second thing is the more we're together, the more we're just present, uh, one that wards off consumerism because we entertain each other and we make culture just being together. Uh, things emerge when people who are dedicated to the Lord and who have the same desire, when we get together, there's a lot of brain power, there's a lot of faith, there's a lot of generations of experience. And we don't always know what's going to happen, but I, th I think things just come out of that. And so having faith that if we get together, then it works. That's great. So community is an alternative to consumerism. I've never heard that, and I really like the way you framed that. Good work. You make music. You tell stories, or you just sit around and drink coffee. There's a lot of that that goes on, too. Hmm. Uh, we didn't watch a lot of TV in our time, not because we against TV, but it's just nice to hang out. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I, I believe, your dissertation, um, but, but let's talk about this on a, on a practical level. On, so you looked at the early church in your doctoral, in your dissertation, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And um, how did the early church do this well, and what are some, kind of frame this for us in regards to uh, how how they did it and how we might be able to model it. You used some, some language with me last week when we were together that I thought was fascinating, so let's talk through that. So other people have drawn parallels between our own time and early Christianity. Now, in our tradition, we're particularly interested in the way things worked in the early church, but generally speaking, early Christians were a minority. Uh, they weren't an official religion of the Roman Empire, and so they had to be a little secretive. They had to be underground. It also meant they had a very clearly defined identity because of their minority status. Today we live in what some people have called a post-Christian world. So once again, we find ourselves outside of Christendom, outside of a religion that's officially sanctioned by the culture and society. Now, Oklahoma is a fairly Christian society, so it's kind of blurry. Still, uh, the resources of the early church uh, were intended to form people and to prepare them for that kind of a life, to live differently from the world, in a world that could be hostile to, uh, to their commitments. And so the, the church formed people uh, at a variety of levels. Uh, morally, intellectually, and spiritually. Um, some of this was done through the worship of the church, which would have been daily in the early church. Christians usually met every morning for some period of time. Um, you still see this in, in the Catholic Church where there's daily mass. So that, that's a kind of vestige of that very early practice. Um, so the Christians would often get together before the sun came up, before work, and have a little prayer or something together. Maybe they had donuts, I don't know. Um, so they were actually together quite a bit in their life. Um, the biggest part of the formation came when one wanted to enter the church. 
so to become a Christian. They viewed this as a process, as a journey. Um, we tend to think of it more as an event. What this looked like was a person would declare their intention to become a Christian. And then they get vetted. You have to have a sponsor to be baptized, which means a person who can vouch for you, that you're not a spy, that you're not just trying to uh, you know, get in in some sort of social club, but they know you and they know what you're about. And then this person becomes what we would call your accountability partner through the process, where you have to check in with them how you're doing, how you're progressing, because you're expected at this point to start rooting out the bad habits from your life. Um, are you engaged in sinful activity? Is, do you have sinful relationships? Stop it. Get rid of them. Do you have unreconciled relationships? Fix them. Get your house in order. So there's an intensive moral formation. Some kinds of work were off limits. Prostitution, obviously. Also, if you worked in a theater, you couldn't be a Christian because of the things this theater was. So a fairly high bar here. I mean, imagine if we said, well, we can't baptize you here until you get out of this line of work. So a high bar. They're also going through a period of instruction in the faith. Here's what Christianity is about. This would have involved a lot of biblical uh, work, also some kind of basic Christian teaching, who is Jesus, and so forth. This could take anywhere from three months to three years. And your sponsor and the church leaders would decide when you were ready. Uh, when you were ready, the baptism itself was a big deal. And it was a big deal because it's ending your old life as a citizen of the Roman Empire. And it's beginning your new life as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And as a citizen of the Roman Empire, there's certain values, there's certain way of thinking, there's certain desires, and you're ending those and picking up new ones. And so the baptismal event itself was a kind of all-night party, um, which involved promises being made by the church to the person, the person making a fairly elaborate confession of faith, which also involved certain promises. I'm going to stop doing the things that I did. I'm going to commit to prayer. I'm going to commit to these things. Uh, and then after the baptism, they had the Lord's Supper together. And it was the first communion. So everything was made special. And the purpose was to say, you are now different. And we want you to feel that in your body. We want you to feel it through these ceremonies. And if you've ever been hazed or been in a club that does that sort of thing, you understand the power of those kinds of rituals of initiation. And the early church really knew how to capitalize on those to form a distinct community. Uh, you, you referenced, you, you've referenced this already without using the word, uh, but talk to us about catechesis. Uh, and and the, there's the intellectual level and then the ritual level. So catechesis is a word that comes from Greek. It's a word that the early Christians use. Uh, you can hear in the middle of catechesis, echo, catechesis. Uh, and it literally just means what has echoed down through the ages. And so maybe you remember 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, that which I received, I now hand on to you. That's catechesis. What I've been given, I give to you, one generation to the next. And so those early Christians were very intentional about catechesis. It happened informally in the home, in a Christian home, 
you would teach your children. You'd tell them Bible stories. You'd tell them about the faith, much of what we, we do. There was also a formal catechesis in the church for young people where the church said, these are the things that we think you should know if you're going to be a Christian, and we're going to teach them to you, and then you're going to be ready, and then you can make that decision when it's time. But we're going to make sure that you're prepared and ready for that decision. So not quite the summit, but something along those lines, preparing them. Um, and there was a particularly intensive period every year, um, which the whole church together had a season of repentance and lamentation. And it's pretty interesting, uh, given some of the things you've preached recently, but for three months leading up to Easter, they wouldn't say Alleluia in their worship. They just kind of cut it out. They said, we're going we're gonna to be somber for a little while. And they did this every single year. Uh, and that was the period when people were preparing for baptism. And so repentance becomes built into the life of the church. So it's for people who are preparing for baptism, but the whole church, in a sense, is reliving the process every year. And one more thing, the whole church every year renewed its own baptismal promises. So if you can imagine one Sunday a year, the church stands up, I don't know, put their hand on their heart, and they repeat again what they repeated when they came out of the water. I'm going to be faithful. Jesus is Lord. Whatever that commitment is. And that's, I think, a way that we shape a people, that we form a narrative, and that we know who we are. So the research, when you look at generations, millennial generation, um, specifically in this research, uh, Christian Smith did a lot of research on the millennials. And when he looked at different faith groups, he noticed that the Mormons, their children were more faithful into their adulthood than, than Christians. And what he uncovered was exactly what you're talking about, is that that group of people were extremely intentional with uh, these types of things. So, so like in the mornings, they would have Bible studies on a daily basis. And uh, looking at my life, I'm not great at that. And, and, and I, th I think that's kind of a cultural thing that, that we're, we're not super intentional with, um, like the early church was. Why, why do you think that is? And, um, and then I want to kind of talk about celebrations a bit. I think it's the British that tell this joke uh, that when your religion starts to interfere with your life, you should get rid of it. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and I think I know how it's meant, but I've always taken it the other way. Uh, unless our faith is integrated completely in everything that we do, it will be an inconvenience. If you say, come to one more Bible study, you're like, I have so much going on already. Or if I said to you today, if you're going to be a good Christian, you should be at prayer every morning or Bible study every morning. You know, you might kind of gulp and say, okay, I'm going to do it, but it's going to take a heroic effort. And eventually the strain will show. And eventually we all break. So unless we find ways not just to wedge more Christian-y things into our life and restructure our life around our faith so that it becomes natural and normal and easy to follow Jesus. Easy not in the sense of there's no temptation or anything like that, but easy in the sense of 
these acts of devotion and formation aren't something extra, but they're at the center. I think it has to be that. Otherwise, it's always going to be a competition. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about the difference between mowing the grass and tearing up the grass and planting wheat. And most of us just keep mowing the grass, and we can't figure out why we're not getting something different. That's good. Um, early church really celebrated specific events in children's lives. We celebrate events in children's lives. Uh, how, are, how are the things we celebrate maybe a little different, and um, how can we do a better job at celebrating things that actually matter? Do I need to explain? No, no, no. I'm, uh, we celebrate birthdays. That's a big thing, and that's a time to celebrate the child, and so that's a good thing. And this will sound foreign to us, but through most of Christian history, what's been celebrated is a child's name day, which is a figure in Christian history uh, for whom they're named, someone who is an exemplary figure. And so we're celebrating the model that we want them to aspire to. Uh, it's just, a, I think, a different way of thinking than we think. Um, now, our concept of childhood is a fairly modern thing. Children have not really been celebrated for most of history the way that we celebrate them in part because we're such an affluent society and we, we can afford to do that. Like, so w what we celebrate shows what's important to us, right? And so I, I work in a school and I'm guilty of this as a school leader. Uh, we have academic ceremonies. So we celebrate A's, right? Or we celebrate academic achievement at an academic banquet or athletic banquet, right? And so I'm very guilty of, of living in a world that sometimes celebrates uh, meaning. We, we equate meaning to things that we might not should equate meaning to. Not that we shouldn't support kids and encourage kids in, in those endeavors because they're important, but I, I I wish, and I'm kind of going through this process of rethinking, okay, how can we celebrate what really matters? How can we celebrate a kid's relationship with Jesus Christ or, or walking along? Uh, so how can we celebrate baptism? How can we celebrate uh, service? You know, that, that's kind of where my, my thinking is. Um, in some ways, the church stands in for other civic and cultural institutions that have fallen off. So there are things that you get at church, and a church like this especially, that you just can't get otherwhere else. Uh, this is a place where a community happens in a really broad sense, broader than just Christianity. And that's good because it's where humans flourish. I, I think maybe what you're referencing is um, what may be more narrowly Christian. Uh, so for instance, we celebrate graduation here that's a big deal is the Sunday where we celebrate the graduates and that's a good thing to do um, it's an important moment in the in the life of a child uh, but it is a little divorced from anything historically Christian um, so we've allowed our calendar in some ways to be set by the school system or the American system or whatever it is now without offering any specific suggestions, because I don't have any, 
I would say that it is an exciting thing to think about reimagining what those kinds of celebrations might look like because they don't have to look like anything that's come before. But just thinking how could we celebrate baptism in a different way? How could we celebrate a child's first communion as part of the body of Christ in a way that is more than just telling them this is what communion means, but acting it out together as a family of this is what it means and this is what you're into. And it's serious and it's exciting and it will sustain you. But don't just take my word for it. Feel it. You know, the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so I want to imagine how we as a church let the kids taste it. And they do taste it in the youth group. I mean, they have fantastic support. And, uh, you know, my kids have benefited tremendously being here. There's always more we can do, and there's always a way we can integrate that uh, together. You know, and maybe there's some point in which there is a disconnect. I don't know. Um, but I love thinking uh, and imagining. And it's also the place where those who may not normally have a place in the worship because they have different skill sets or whatever reason, uh, like all those people who do theater but really just run the lights, you know, <laughs> This is a place where they get to come in, mm -hmm. and, and the whole church. You know, Paul says we all have the gifts. Well, these times of celebrations, I think, are ways that the whole church begins to use gifts, exercise muscles um, that we don't normally think of as church muscles, but for the end of forming and shaping kids and building up our community, the body of Christ in Edmond, Oklahoma. I think that uh, our love, I love all this talk about celebration. I think shouldn't the church be leading the charge on here's how you, here's how you celebrate well the, the truth is we're not but it, that's something to aspire to on a very practical level I, my brain was just I'm trying to think through are there are there anything that are there things that we do at this particular church to celebrate and uh like I thought of you know one great thing that our children's ministers do is just a few weeks ago at the, all the fifth graders spent a semester doing a project at might have been a play they wrote or a uh, painting they made or but they displayed it all in the lobby and so they they got this experience of having all these people walk by and affirm them in their giftedness and their their faces were just they were just beaming it, and it was a celebratory atmosphere or on a very different level I think of a so I I come from a I have a rich history of faith in my family and this summer my mother uh, really played the grandparent card really well with my children. She did something that she called Cousins Camp. She has four grandkids. And so she had them to her house for three or four days. And she she did, basically did VBS in the morning, service projects in the evening. And they had this big ceremony at the end where they all they got their Bibles and this is what you underline. And Well, this has been three or four months now. My girls still talk about it. So I think it's really important as parents and leaders, that we think about, well, what are the moments that we can celebrate? Um, th there's probably a lot of, of room to grow in that area, but I, I do think it's important because I think kids become who we say that they already are. Everybody's got a memory of a leader saying, you are really good at encouraging. You are a really good thinker. And we become that. And so it's so important that we learn 
as leaders to do that for our young people? One thing that I think our tradition has been good at is when I was a kid from a young age, I was up front leading a song on Wednesday night or Sunday night, and that really shaped who I was. But it wasn't just me. It was like every kid in the church was up there doing that and being celebrated. And, and something that I saw that is a little different in these communities that we would visit is uh, they love these talent shows, right, which is when everyone just gets together and you have to do something up front, and it's not usually involving a talent, but it's how you pass the time. But it always involved kids. Kids were always up in front. Kids were always doing silly things, and they were being applauded and loved and celebrated. And that, you know, there's nothing overtly spiritual about that. It's just kids being at the center of things with adults uh, and doing the things that adults are doing, but in their own miniature ways. And so I think that's the sort of thing you're talking about, Phil. And um, one last thing, our tradition has always been really good at this sort of thing because we're an entrepreneurial tradition. We have... We don't wait around for Phil to tell us what to do. The Bible class just goes and does what it thinks needs to be done. And that produces some pretty interesting things. So I think we're, we are already empowered if we could just catch the vision. Um, and I think in a church this size, I wouldn't be surprised if different things kind of cropped up if this vision broadly um, was in the air. Who knows what will happen? I don't know. Phil, I want to hear about, so you preached on the Sabbath Sunday. Didn't you celebrate the Sabbath yeah. with your with your family? Yeah, so we, <laughs> I've always thought Sabbath was a good idea, but we've never, to my shame, set aside a day and truly planned it to be Sabbath, as best we understand that. And so we did that last week, and first my family sat down and we all made lists of n- number one things that bring us closer to God. So my six-year-old and nine-year-old are writing down, you know, drawing or, you know, walking in the backyard or reading my Bible. That in itself was neat. Just to th- what, what do my kids think about that? And then the, the question number two was, was how do you find delight? And so we, we all made lists of just things that don't necessarily make the world go round and they're not productive but things that we find joy in, so riding bikes and taking hikes. And, and so we made a whole list of those things, too. And then, and then on this, so this past Saturday, we, we practiced Sabbath. And so we, um, we spent a lot of time doing those things that bring us joy, just uh, hiking and biking and, and um, reading books aloud together. We had Mary, my wife, led an exercise in the afternoon where my girls drew pictures of what they were grateful for. Um, and the rules were no, uh, if you were gonna, if we were gonna watch a movie or something, it had to be intentional. So there was no, you couldn't look at a screen unless it was on purpose. So we had boundaries with technology. And uh, it was one of the most refreshing and rewarding days that I've ever had. And it was for everybody. My girls are still talking about it. When, when are we going to do Sabbath again? When are we going to do Sabbath again? Like, were you were you actually able to take a Sabbath, or was it kind of stressful to no? To rest? We planned for it, so okay. we we planned meals ahead of time. We we, were, we worked really hard the, the days before it to make sure that. I mean, I just turned my phone off for sixteen hours. So it's so countercultural. It's fantastic to not do anything. There, there are some things you can't engage when you have work and technology. 
So if you can do the hard work of pushing that aside, even for one day, it, it, was, it was quite the ritual. And, and what, one thing I didn't realize would happen is that I thought it would be a lot more impactful for me, and it was. I loved it. But I was floored it, even for one time, how much my girls are like, we got to do this. Okay, we can do it again. It's great. I think that's a great kind of a practical example. Yeah. Sum all this up. Dr. Bass, anything else? I can just call people to see things a little differently. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be riding a bike and drawing pictures with your kids. But if we can start thinking outside of the box and think about thinking about that as a Christian discipline, the discipline of imagination. Um, this faith thing isn't just getting the job done, but I think it can become something pretty exciting for us and fulfilling. And I, I just want to invite people into that. Thanks. Let's give him Thanks a for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.